0: The sermon this morning comes from Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. It's Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. Hear now the word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let us pray together, church. Father, we are your children. We are saved today, not because of our work, but because of your work. For it is by grace we have been saved, not by works. It is your gift, so that none of us may boast. And it's in understanding that you have saved us, that we find our great security, that we are yours and forever will be. And so help us today to hear from you through your word, which you have given us, help us to have ears to hear A mind to understand, a heart to rejoice, and eyes to see the glory of Jesus, our Savior. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Throughout the nation of Peru, there exists a number of man-made hills and valleys. What's interesting about these hills and valleys that have existed for, we believe, somewhere around 5,000 years is that at least until recently, they had no apparent function or even apparent pattern. The hills would go on for 100 or 200 yards and abruptly stop, or it would go on and, and abruptly turn to the right and then go on for 50 more yards and then turn to the left, and so forth. Many guessed that it was perhaps some type of irrigation system used by ancient Peruvians. Others suggested they were boundary markers of some sort. Well, the mystery was solved in 1939 by a man named Dr. Paul Kasach from Long Island University simply by flying over these hills in a plane. And as he gazed down upon the hills, he saw that these seemingly random hills and valleys actually formed drawings of birds and turtles and other animals. It is amazing. And it still, I think, confounds many people that these Peruvians 5,000 years ago were drawing or were making art in which they could not appreciate from the ground. It made no sense from our perspective. In order to see the beauty of these creations, you needed to get a higher perspective. Well, I think this is perhaps a metaphor on life, that our life quite often, we believe we are headed one way. And we abruptly stop. We think there is one direction to our career, to our family, to our church, to our finances, to our health, and all of a sudden one day it turns to the right, out of nowhere, and we go down this path and then it turns to the left, and it goes some other direction. And it all seems seemingly random to us, seemingly confusing to us. I wonder, do you know where your life is headed? Do you know where you're going? Where will you end up? I mean, can we even be sure? Well, I believe God has given us his scripture so that we may be sure. I believe, in fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, not only tells us where we are going, but how we are going to get there. In fact, friend, if you are in Christ, I believe your life is in many ways God's artwork. In fact, the passage I was praying just a moment ago, Ephesians chapter 2, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. Friend, if you are a Christian, you need to understand you are God's workmanship. In fact, the Greek term that we use to translate that is poema where we get the English word poem, one translation puts it this way, we are his masterpiece. This is what God is doing in your life. He is making a masterpiece. You are his workmanship. He is, if you will, making art out of your life. And if you want to know what he's drawing... Well, he tells us here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that for those whom he foreknew, he, pre, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's not drawing a turtle. He's not drawing a bird or some other animal in your life, but he is drawing the image of his son. He is working in your life to make you like Jesus. Now, I understand it's somewhat hard to appreciate that in the mundane affairs of life, in the traffic jams and broken appliances and scraped knees from children and some marital strife or financial difficulties or a unwanted doctor's visit and on and on. We look at this and we say, how can this be making me like Christ? Well, friends, you and I need a higher perspective. We cannot see the work in which God is doing from the level in which we are, so God gives us his word to show us a glimpse of what he is doing in our life, what he is making. Romans 8, verses 29 through 30 show us the lines that he is drawing, lines that do not go 100 yards or 200 yards, but lines that actually begin at the beginning of time and shall carry on throughout time. In fact, do you recognize the scope, the, the, the chronological scope of this passage? You notice he begins in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, referring to before the foundation of the world. And you notice where he ends up in verse 30, those whom he also glorified. And so right here before us, we have a, a picture of what God is doing to save you. And it is the entire work of God from the beginning of time all the way through to the end of eternity. It shows us God's work to bring about your salvation. This is clearly the most expansive scope of the saving work of God that we have anywhere in Scripture. A glorious, incredible picture. One commentator says that in these verses, we are soaring at sublime heights, unequaled elsewhere in the New Testament. And so what I hope to do this morning is to gaze upon the work of God in our salvation from beginning to end. And we don't want to do this not simply so that we may know what God did in the past or what God is doing in the future, but that we may know what he is doing for us today and tomorrow and the next day. In fact, we studied Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 last week, and we saw that we know for those who love God, all things work together for those who love, uh, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we spent a little bit of time on this phrase that begins verse 28, it says, and we know, we know this to be true. But the question that may be raised is how? I mean, it doesn't feel like all things are working for our good. How do you know that to be true? Well, look in the first word in verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and onward. You see what verses 29 and verse 30 are. They are the the reason why we may believe verse 28. Some have said verses 29 and 30 are the foundation upon which the, the mansion of verse 28 is built. I can promise you this morning that all things work for your good, Christian. Because, for God foreknew you, and He who foreknew you predestined you, and He who predestined you called you, and He who called you justified you, and He who justified you glorified you. This is often referred to, and has been referred to over centuries, as the, the verses as the golden chain of redemption. There are five links in this chain, each forged by God. You notice that God is the subject of all these verbs. It's those he for you, those he predestined, those he called, those he justified, and those he glorified. Paul wants to emphasize the fact that you are saved not by your works, but by God's work. In fact, you contributed nothing to your salvation. He did all the work and you're not going to get to heaven and give God a big high five and said, we did it. Way to go team. Right? It is his work. He has done it all for you. Which is why you can be sure it will be completed. Because if you forge one of those chains in that link, in your redemption, I'll tell you, friends, it would be a weak chain indeed. Your salvation is God's work from the beginning of time to the end of time, each link formed in heaven. In fact, what lies before us is often described as the sovereignty of God in salvation. I am well aware this morning that when we use words like predestination and foreknowledge, we are walking into some controversial areas. I understand that what I will teach you this morning will raise some emotions in your heart. We need to consider these truths, however. They are hard, they are deep, but they are God's Word. And many of you, why I'm preaching this morning... In your heart, will agree with what I'm saying, and you will be saying, amen, preacher. Many of you, while I teach this morning, will be inundated with more questions. If what he's saying is true, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Many of you, while I'm preaching this morning, will not like anything that I'm saying at all. In fact, you may even throw your shoe at me. I'm fast, so I'm not worried. And so let's be aware... That today we come to an open-handed issue. The sovereignty of God in salvation. Election. There are issues I will fight you for. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The virgin birth. His sinless perfection. His substitutionary atonement. His bodily resurrection. His imminent return. There are some things that I will be happy to disagree with you. When is he coming? What happens before? What happens after? and even the sovereignty of God in election. And so these are not issues for us to divide upon. In fact, there is even disagreement amongst your elders on how God works in salvation. And so we can continue to worship together in unity and still have disagreement on these issues. And so let's just briefly consider, before we even get in the text, let's lay a little groundwork to make sure we understand pretty much the two options that Christians hold— in how they became a Christian. How did you become a Christian? There are really two different ways to understand this. We can call option number one, salvation possible. Option number one is God makes salvation possible. It's the idea that God convicts you one day of your sin and he enlightens your mind to the truth of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. And then he leaves that final decision up to you. God does everything to make salvation possible, and you have to then agree. You then have to um, um, choose God himself. And so in this sense, the individual is sovereign, whether he or she, she becomes a Christian. God gives them the deciding vote. Will you become a Christian or will you not? He makes salvation possible. The other option is we can call salvation accomplished. The idea is that God convicts you of sin, and then God enlightens your mind to the truth of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, but He actually goes beyond that. He actually overcomes our resistance to Him. He actually changes our heart and changes our will so that everyone whom He does this work in will believe. He actually does all of the salvation. He not only makes salvation possible, he actually saves. And so the individual is not sovereign in whether they become a Christian or not. God is. God, if you will, to use biblical language, chooses. Or God elects. And let me give you a metaphor so we can just kind of understand these two options. Salvation possible will be if you were drowning in the ocean. And Jesus came to the shore of the ocean And he threw you a life preserver. Now, if he did not come, you would die. You would drown. He comes, throws you to life preserver, and you reach out and you grab onto that life preserver. And he pulls you to shore. When you get to shore, you thank him for your salvation. Because he certainly did a saving work and you would be dead if he did not do that work. That's salvation possible. He makes salvation possible, but you must grab hold of that life preserver. Salvation accomplished is the idea that you're not drowning in the in sea, but you're dead in the bottom of the sea. And he could stand on the shoreline and throw you life preservers all day long, but you cannot grab them at all because you're dead. And so rather than throwing you a life preserver, he dives down into the sea, grabs your lifeless corpse, brings it back to the shore, labors over to you until life is returned to you. In this understanding, God makes not salvation possible, but he actually saves. Now, just to lay my cards on the table. You probably already know, but I'm a salvation accomplished kind of guy. I believe he does all the work. I don't believe that man is, in, is sovereign as to whether God gets what he wants. I believe God chooses who will be saved. And I understand that is very difficult and hard to understand. I didn't always believe that. For about 10 years of my Christian life, I rejected this teaching. And about 10 years ago, through my study of God's word, I became convinced of it. And I will tell you that my life changed radically. It was probably the most fundamental change in my life next to becoming a Christian. My worship changed. How I treated my wife changed. How I understood my finances changed. Everything about me changed. And so I know I, these are open handed issues. I think they are very important. And so we may disagree on that. So that's just the context. But what can we agree on before we get to the text? The point of this passage is not to create debates amongst us. The point of this passage is not so that we can have division over issues of election. See, Paul's writing as a a pastor, not a theologian. And he wants you and I to have security and confidence and assurance and certainty in the midst of a troubled and tiring life that we are his and that our salvation is certain. And if the best way to tell us that our salvation is certain, Paul says is look what God has done to save you. He's done all of this work. He is the subject of all these verbs. From the very beginning to the very end, God is committed to save you. And therefore there are none lost. There are no dropouts. There are none that, that get to step three and then fall away. Paul wrote, I am confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so my hope, friends, is that we not leave this morning with a bunch of theological questions, though we may have those. My hope is that ultimately that we leave here with a renewed sense of security in God. That we leave here with a spring in our step, And spine in our, a steel in our spine and our heads lifted high and hope in our heart believing that my God has saved me. My God is committed to saving me and my God will never waver in that commitment. So come on world. My God reigns. If God is for me, who can be against me? friends that's my hope for you that's my hope for me that we would leave here strong stable enemy loving risk-taking generous gracious giving christians knowing that god is for us from the beginning of time to today to the end of time and so what do i have to fear god is with us and if you are here this morning and you are not a christian we are delighted that you are here we thank you for coming my hope for you, my goal for you this morning is that you would see that you cannot save yourself. So many in this world are trying to save themselves by their own good works, their own deeds, their own kindness and generosity. Fred, it will not work. I don't know where you got that idea, but the Bible t- teaches us over and over and over and over and over it is not true. My hope is rather than you trying to save yourself, you would despair of your own self-effort and rely completely on the effort of Christ for you five simple points this morning. The five verbs, each link in the golden chain, God foreknew you, God predestined you, God called you, God justified you, and God glorified you. Number one, God foreknew you. This is where we'll have the bulk of our disagreement. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew. And so what does it mean that God foreknew us? Well, I do want to understand, we all would agree that this is, he doesn't, he's not talking about everyone, right? Because you notice those whom he foreknew, he what? He predestined. And so this is a select group of people. We in some sense can say God God knew everyone, right? But he's talking about a, a unique group. So what does it mean that he foreknew you? Now again, there's two options here. Those who believe in a, a kind of a salvation possible view will understand this term to be uh, an equivalent of foresight. They, they would say that for, for those whom God foresaw, that God looked down the corridor of time and saw something about them. Most of those people will say he saw their faith. And so he looked before you even existed, God knew or God foresaw that you would believe him. And based upon that foresight, he he chose you. And so they would kind of add a phrase here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew who, that they would believe in Jesus, he predestined. Right? He chooses them because he saw they first chose him. He saw their faith and chose them based upon that foresight. The other option would be, the synonym I would use is for loved. Rather than God knowing something about people before they exist, he actually knows them personally. He loves them. He's in a relationship with them before they even were created. That he knows you. He has a relationship with you. And he didn't know what we would necessarily, it's not that, no, of course, he knew what we would do before we existed, but he knew a people himself. Before you even existed, God loved you. God placed his love on you and chose to enter into a relationship with you. Now, I believe this is teaching this idea for love, not foresight. I believe this for a number of reasons. First of all, if I believe if God is just looking through the corridor of time to seeing who would choose him, he would see zero people. I do not believe that you and I are free on our own to choose God. I believe that because Romans 3.10 tells me, for no one seeks God. In case we don't understand what no one means... Paul goes on and says, not even one. There is none that seek God. But we don't have to look all the way back to Romans 3. We can just look here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, a text we studied a number of weeks ago, where he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it... You see that word? Cannot. The mind in the flesh is not free. It cannot... It does not have the freedom to submit to God's law. There's no freedom there. It's free to sin, but it is not free to submit to God's law. And note verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, I think choosing Christ, putting your faith in Christ, would be very pleasing to God. But he says if you are in the flesh, which is everyone prior to coming to Christ, they cannot please God. They cannot choose God. They cannot on their own put their faith in God. They are not free to do so. They are enslaved by sin. Enslaved in the flesh. The other reason why I don't believe in the foresight view, I believe this is a foreloved, is because he says he foreknew us. Well, he he's not foreknews what we would do. It's not an action. He says he foreknew this people. It's a people that he foreknew. And this people whom he foreknew, he predestined and so forth. In fact, if you study the uh, the, the word know, in which God knows us, it's never used in the Bible that he knows things about you. It's always used with the idea that he loves you, that he knows you, that he's in a relationship with you. Let me give you some scriptures you may want to look at, at uh, this week sometime. You could jot them down if you like. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now God knows all families, doesn't he? I mean, he's not like this is the only nation I know. But when he says, you alone I know, he's saying, you alone I've chosen. You alone I love. You alone I have a relationship with. Or Hosea 13 verse 5. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. It's not what God knew what they would do in the wilderness. He says, I took care of you. I knew you. You were mine. I loved you. Genesis 18, verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No, for I have chosen him. That word chosen isn't actually the word chosen. It's the word "no," for I know him you see what the translators are saying it's like god when he says he knows someone he means he's in a relationship with them jeremiah 1 5 before i formed you in the womb i knew you it's not that i knew what uh, jeremiah would do he says i knew you i chose to be in a relationship with you jesus will say to the hypocrites according to matthew 7 and verse 23 i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness now jesus knows everyone doesn't he so what does he mean when he says i never knew you well, I've never been in a relationship with you. I I I was never I, I never had chosen you. I never had placed my love upon you. First Peter 1.20 even refers to Jesus as being foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The Bible's not saying that God knew what Jesus would do, but it means that He had a relationship with Jesus. Last one, Galatians four and verse nine. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. You're known by God. It doesn't mean God knows a bunch of things about you. It means he loves you. And so I understand foreknowledge to be, if you will, the equivalent of being foreloved. It doesn't mean that God knows what I will do beforehand. It means that God knew me beforehand and he set his affection on me, which blows me away. That before the, before the world existed, God said, I love Stephen Carr. Not because I'm worth it, not because he looked down and said, okay, well, I'm going to love him because he does X, Y, and Z. No, simply because it was according to God's plan to place his love upon me. And friends, I feel great sense of security. If God chose to love me before the world began, then who, who am I to be afraid of? Before time had even created, he says, I'm going to love you. There was never a time in which, in which time existed in which God did not love you. He did not wait for you to place your faith in him, for him to have that, that saving love upon you. He had chosen to do so before time began. I know this raises so many questions. Just table them for a moment and think what wonder and awe and security this creates that God loved me, even for loved me. See, I know all things work together for my good. I know all things work together for your good because God foreknew you. I know you are secure because God foreknew you, and those whom God foreknew, he predestined. You see that there in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, I'll just tell you, this is not a word I made up. Predestination is not Stephen Carn's word. It is a biblical word. And whether we like it or not, if you're a Christian, the Bible says you have been predestined. It's right here. You have been predestined. Now, I don't believe this, this word means that God chose, if you will who would have a saving relationship with him. I think that's what foreknowledge means. We just talked about this. What predestined means is that God has not has chosen where you'll end up. You see the word destined in there? The destiny? Maybe the best way to translate this, I think, would be he has predestinationed you. He has determined before the beginning of time what your destiny would be. And it's like if you're a Christian, you're on a train and you are headed somewhere. That that destination has been determined by God. Foreknowledge is how you get on the train. Your your destination is where you will end. And you want to know where we're ending? You don't want to know where we get off this salvation train? You don't want to know what your stop is? Perfect Christ-likeness. And so when he gets on the intercom and says, Next stop, perfect righteousness. You say, that's my stop. I get off here. Holy perfection. That's me. Glorification. Okay, this is where I get off on this train. This is where your destiny is. In fact, you notice verse 29 says, He predestined you to where? Where are you going? To be conformed to the image of His Son. God has an eternal plan. To make... To create a people like Jesus. He wants to create people who look like Christ, who are in His image. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, for our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. That's your destination. To become like Jesus. First John chapter three, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. You're going to become like Jesus, Kirsten. That's where you're headed. And by the way, you're going to become like Jesus, not simply because God loves you, but because God loves Jesus. Finish verse 29. He says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of a son. Why? What's the purpose? Why am I saved? In order that he might be the firstborn Among many brothers When the Bible says that Jesus is firstborn It's referring to his supremacy His preeminence Colossians 1.18 says he's the firstborn From among the dead That in everything he might be preeminent And so he's going to have this preeminence The firstborn And he will have many brothers and sisters That look just like him I trust that he will enjoy his family For all eternity Perhaps we should enjoy ours. We should start practicing, right? Enjoy your Christian family, for Christ shall enjoy you forever. But I don't think that's ultimately what he's talking about when he says that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I think it has more to do with Jesus than it does with us. I think God loves Jesus so much. I think God is so pleased with Jesus. He admires Jesus so much that he has decreed before time began that there will be millions like him that there will be millions and millions and millions of mirrors reflecting the glory of Jesus. I think upon that new earth, when you and I live for eternity, we will forever rejoice in Jesus' glory in one another. I'm going to see you, and I'm going to say, you know what? You remind me of Jesus. And you're going to look at me, believe it or not, just stretch your imagination. You know what, Pastor? You know what, Stephen? You remind me of Jesus. And you know why I like you? You're just like Jesus. And I think forever that we're going to have these millions and millions of years God has ordained second-born and third-born and fourth-born and millionth-born that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters that look like Christ, that reflect him. And so you want to know why my, I believe my salvation is secure? Because my salvation is rooted in the Father's desire to make much of Christ. And so if God one day decides not to make much of Jesus, then I'll be a little insecure. If the father one day says, you know, I'm not sure I love Jesus anymore, then maybe I may not be super confident in my salvation. But as long as the father wants to make much of Jesus, I am confident that he will save me because he wants him to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And you shall become like him that you might glorify him. But by the way, that's not the only reason you will become like Jesus. You'll become like him to glorify him, but you'll become like him so that you may find joy in him. Why is it that, that we get more excited about a touchdown than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why is it that we so often are pumped up and shout about a home run and are somewhat timid when we talk about the crucifixion of our Lord? It's sin. We don't value Jesus like we ought to. It's sin. And one day God will remove that sin from you. And all that which is inhibiting you from finding your joy in Christ shall be removed forever. And Christ will be exalted upon the stage. And that will be the most glorious, joy-filling thing that you could ever imagine. It's all God's work. He foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he glorified you to make much of Jesus. And you will become holy like Jesus so that you may be free from unholy sin in order that you might admire and rejoice and find joy in Jesus. You know, I know all things work together for my good. I know that my salvation is secure because God has predestined me and you to be like Christ. Do you notice that's not where he stops? Staw- uh, staw- you see, verse 30 he says "And he." And those whom he predestined, he also called. We talked a little bit about this week. God called you. Number three. There are really two kinds of calls that Scripture talks about. There's what we call a a general call. It happens every time we preach the gospel and we say, come to faith in Christ, bow your knee to King Jesus and receive His salvation. We are calling people to have faith. Jesus did that. Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe the gospel. Matthew chapter 11, He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 7, He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. You see, Jesus is inviting people. He's calling people to believe in in him but that's not the kind of call that Paul's referring to here because you notice verse 30 says those who are called he also justified and so the called ones according to verse 30 are those whom god has justified those who have believed in him and are justified by his grace and so what we understand this not to be is not a general call but what we have called what we label an effectual call an effective call it's more than an invitation. It's a, it's a divine summons. Sometimes I preach the gospel and some people care less. Some people, some people get angry. Right? I call them to believe and they say, no, I will not believe. But there are some people, who, when they hear the gospel, they are given a new heart by God. They are given eyes to see and ears to hear and they place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be called. I think the example of Lazarus is a beautiful one to describe this calling. Remember Lazarus who was dead for four days? If you were walked to Lazarus' tomb and you were saying, say, Come on, Lazarus, come on out. Lazarus, dinner's ready. Lazarus, we miss you. Won't you come forth? We, we, want, we want to celebrate with you. And you called and called and called. Lazarus would not come because he does not have that ability. But you have Christ standing at the tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. Not as just some general invitation, but as a divine summons. And Lazarus, the dead man, is given life. And he, by his own free will, walks out of that tomb into the arms of Christ. I think this is what it means to be called. This is what's happened to you. There was a day in your life where God said, believe in me. Trust in me and called you to faith. The Bible says he took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh so that you might believe in him. He caused you to be born again by his spirit. He regenerated you. And the fact that you believe in him is proof that he's called you. I appreciate what one pastor says. He says, the call of God that Paul has in mind is not like the call of a pet. Hear, Blackie, hear, Blackie. Come on, girl. Blackie may come or not come. But the call of God is like the call of Jesus to the corpse of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. The call contains the power to produce what it commands. It is an effectual call. Now, don't misunderstand me. We must believe in Christ to be saved. We must trust in him. We must have faith in him. But friends, I'm convinced that I believe in Jesus because he first called me to do so. Faith is what I do. It is my faith. But the reason I am willing or even able to believe is because of God's work in my life. And therefore, I don't take credit for my faith. I don't boast in it. I don't look in the mirror and say, way to go, Stephen. You believed in Jesus. No, the Bible tells me that he is the author of my faith, the founder of my faith. It's perfecter. And so I trust that my salvation is secure. I know Romans 8.28 is true for you and me because my faith rests not upon some weak pastor's invitation, but upon the divine call of Jesus Christ. Well, you notice as we move on, number four. And those whom he called, he also justified. His call creates in us an ability to believe and in believing in him, I'm justified. Now, we've spent a lot of time on justification over the previous weeks, so we're not going to spend much time here. But I'll tell you, of all the five works of God, it's probably the most important. I don't want to rank them, but if I had to, I would put justification at the top. I don't know if you remember the sermon in Romans chapter 8, and verse 1. There is therefore now no... you remember that one? Condemnation, right? There is no condemnation. Well, that's what it means to be justified. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. When a judge condemns you, he doesn't make you guilty. He condemns you because you are guilty. It is a declaration of your guilt. When God justifies you, he doesn't make you righteous. He declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be a lawkeeper. He declares you to have perfectly kept his law. That's what it means to be justified. I like to use the example of, of how justification is more than forgiveness by saying, let's ta- say you took a test. I gave you a test. And believe it or not, you failed the test. And you said, Stephen, I failed the test. I can forgive your F. I can say, don't worry about it. Your F is forgiven. Let's try again. Take it over. That's forgiveness. Or I can say, don't worry about it. Your F is forgiven. In fact, I'm going to credit you with an A. That's justification. Let's say you owe me a $1,000. You said, I can't pay my debt. I said, don't worry about it. Your debt is forgiven. That means you don't owe me anything. But what if I said, don't worry about it. Your debt is forgiven. And more than that, I'm going to put a million dollars in your account. That's justification. He not only forgives our sins, He credits us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness, which He accumulated in 33 years of sinless life, is actually given into your account so that God looks in you and says, you are righteous just like Jesus. You have been justified. Say, so how can, how can I be justified? I've sinned. How can, can you just sweep, sweep my sin under the rug? Can he just wink His eye at my sin? Ah, oh, don't worry about it. No. He's a holy God. In fact, turn back to Romans chapter 3. Just real briefly, look in verses 23. Romans 3, verse 23. What is, how, how is it that I'm justified? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How, how am I justified? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Some of your Bibles say sacrificial atonement. As a wrath bearer, he put forth as a propitiation to, to bear that wrath of God by his blood, he says. And so God takes all your sin and places it upon Jesus. And then he takes all of Jesus' righteousness and places it on you like a garment. So he how, how do I get this justification? Well, re- finish verse 25, or at least that sentence. To be received by faith. You want to be justified, you must believe in Jesus. You must bow your knee to Jesus Christ. You must give him your life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, as we said, we're glad you're here. For friends, I want to tell you, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot, by all your righteousness and good works, make your place secure in heaven. But what you can do is you can turn from your own self-effort, turn from your sin, and bow your knee to Jesus Christ today. Place your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And you will be justified. Your sins will be cast away and the righteousness of Christ will be given to you. And one day you'll stand before God, not based upon your own works, but by the perfect works of Jesus Christ himself. Won't you do that today? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how you're saved, friends. Oh, please, I plead with you. Bow your knee to Jesus. Place your faith and trust in him. And for us Christians, know that all things work together for your good. Know that your salvation is secure because God himself has justified you. Well, lastly, we turn to the fifth link in this chain. You notice here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 ends this way And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's where we're going. We're going to glorification. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, you will be given an unfading crown of glory. Hebrews 2, he is bringing many sons to glory. Jesus one day will say to you, believe it or not, enter the joy of your master. You will be glorified. And as we've seen, we will become just like Christ. We will have the glory in which Christ has. That which God has done for Jesus, he will do for you. Look in verse 17 of Romans 8. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might also be glorified. Finish it with Him, that we be glorified with Christ. That the what God has done with Jesus, that He's glorified Him and exalted Him. We are going to share in that. Colossians three four says, when Christ is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You're going to be glorified like Christ. This means you'll have a glorified body. You, You will not rise forever as an embodied spirit. One day you shall receive this glorified body. Romans 8 and verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who gave life to Christ Jesus will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Bible tells us here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 that we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so one day, friends, you will have a redeemed body, a glorified body. Paul says that it was sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. That means you will have no pain. You will have no weakness. You will have no sickness. You know, last night before I went to bed, I took some ibuprofen for a headache. I took an allergy pill for runny eyes. I took some Toms for heartburn. One day there will be no more headaches, no more allergies, no more heartburn, no more cancer, no more chemotherapy, no more hospitals, no more IVs, no more nurses, no more doctors, no more sickness. A glorified body, that's where you're going. Strong, healthy, glorious, you will be radiant because God has done it. But your glorification will not only be bodily, it will be spiritual. You'll become like Christ in your heart. It's already started. Your body is wasting away this very moment, but your spirit is being renewed by God. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed by day. For in this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight Of glory that is beyond all comparison. You and I are wasting away, but we are being renewed at the very same time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, We all with unveiled faces beholding, beholding, beholding the glory of our Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You know, some people say seeing is believing. That's not biblical. I'll tell you what it is. Seeing is becoming. And the more you behold the glory of Christ, the more you cast your gaze upon him in his revelation, the more you see him in the love that is shared with you by your brothers and sisters in Christ, the more you will be transformed into his likeness. You are becoming more and more like him. But one day, we have a far way to go. But one day that will be completed. God will perfect your spirit and you will be just as likely to sin as Jesus Christ is himself. You will love like you have no idea. You don't know what love is. One day you'll love like God. One day you'll have peace like God. One day you'll have joy like God. One day you'll be kind and good and faithful and gentle and have self-control like God himself. He will glorify you. In fact, that's not even right. You notice what verse 30 says? He also glorified. Past tense. You see that? He glorified you. He is talking about your future state of glorification by saying it's It's already done. It's as good as done. He has decreed it from the beginning of time to put you on this train to take you from foreknowledge all the way to glory. This is what he has decided to do. I praise the Lord that my salvation is not up to me. It is not dependent upon me. He is the one who saves. And it is good as done. And friends, I feel so secure knowing I rest all of it in the hands of a good and gracious Father. No one will pluck me or you out of his hand because he is the one who put you there and he is the one who will hold you there. You shall call his name Jesus because he will make salvation possible no he will save his people from their sins that is the work of christ and i know we don't all agree on some of these issues i understand that 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 there there is some some tension and there's some disagreement But friends, I believe. I believe scripture teaches. I'm going to talk to you as your pastor. I think my job is to do two things as your pastor. One is to love you well, and two is to tell you the truth. Sometimes those don't feel like they go together. I believe what I'm telling you is God's truth. I don't believe God waited for me to give him permission to save me. I just don't believe it. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. I believe that God is sovereign, and I am not. I believe I was dead in the bottom of a lake. I believe, as the Bible tells me, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I believe the Bible tells me that I could not please God. And he saved me. From before time to the end of time, my salvation rests in his hands, and I feel so secure to be there. It is his work. And yet, as I said, we don't all agree. So let's end with what we agree on. Where do we stand united? Well, friends, based upon this passage, if someone were ever to ask you, why do you think you're going to heaven? Why do you believe you will make it to heaven? One answer, I think the typical answer is, oh, because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I bow my knee to Jesus. He's my Lord. That's a right answer. 100% true. But I wonder if we could add a second answer that maybe sometimes you'll share. Why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm going to heaven, friends, because before time, God foreknew me. And because he foreknew me, he predestined me to be just like his son because he wants to make much of Jesus. And because he predestined me, there was a time in my life in which he called me. And based upon that call, I put my faith in him. And the Bible tells me if I trust in him, he's going to justify me, declare me to be righteous. And because I am declared righteous, he has glorified me. That's His plan. That's how I know. I think we can agree on that, that God has done all that is needed if you are in Christ today to keep you secure. God has done all that He is needed to hold you in His saving arms. And that, Christian, you and I, regardless of how we land on some of these issues, do not have to wonder, will I make it? Can I hold on tight enough? Will I trust enough? Friends, we know that those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. If you are on that train, you know your destination. You know, you know, you know that for those who love God, all things work together for your good because God has saved you. From the beginning of time to the end of time, He has saved you. Can we give him thanks? Father in heaven, you indeed are a redeeming God. Oh, I love my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for saving them. I thank you for saving me. I thank you that you have done this great and mighty work. I thank you that you have laid this scripture before us that we may be in awe of your work in salvation. And so, Father, my hope this morning is not necessary that we would work out all these details. Though I think they're important to discuss, Father, and consider and pray about. But my hope, Father, is that we will rejoice in you and that we will know for one reason or another before time was, you were thinking of us. And then there was a time in which you worked in our life that we now believe in you. And you have planned to make us just like Jesus. And so what is it that we have to worry about, Father? What is it that we have to get all bent out of shape? Father, will you please just implant these truths deep into our heart that they may be a foundation upon which we face this world. That they may be the reason we know that you are working all things together for our good. Because this has been your plan forever. Help us to rejoice in this. Help us, Father, as we've already established that we may leave here today with a spring in our step and steel in our spine and a head lifted high with hope in our heart knowing that you are for us. Oh, perhaps there's a brother or sister here this morning that needs to know you are for them. Perhaps there's one or two here, Father, that the weight of this world is heavy. And the burden that they carry in this morning is heavy. And then there is uncertainty in their heart because of it. I pray, Father, that these truths would work a mighty work in their life. I pray that your word would not return void and that you would draw them to you and that you would have them cast their gaze off their own trouble and onto the eternal work of their father for their good. Help them, we pray. We pray for our friend here this morning that does not know you. Father, I ask that you would work in their hearts. I pray you would call them just as you called Lazarus. I pray that you would give them faith. I pray that you would grant them repentance, that it leads to eternal life. Do this work even now. Help them to despair of their own effort for eternal life. Help them to see that it is a house of cards upon which they set their hope. And help them to run to Jesus. For your arms are open wide for them, aren't they, Christ? You are ready to receive them this very moment, all who would trust in you that you may give them eternal life. Do this now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.